this is a pretty strong disclaimer. As usual, nothing graphic, but there are some pretty substantial adult themes in this episode. It's up to you, of course, but this episode probably wouldn't be great for children. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, I'm starting on a famous set of legends from Irish mythology. You'll see how, through some fancy accounting, you can make your son king of an Irish province. Also, you probably don't need me to tell you that this is a bad idea, but you'll see how making a pregnant woman race a horse can end in a bad time for a whole kingdom. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a tiny monk who either will lead you to fantastic riches or steal your clothes while you're wearing them. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 22A, Red Ledger. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. Today I'm starting in on a whole string of tales from Irish folklore. They are kind of myths, kind of legends, and they take place generally in the first century AD. Though, like anything in folklore, there's room for interpretation there. Seeing as it's Irish folklore, they, unsurprisingly, take place mostly in Ireland. It's definitely a pre-Christian Gaelic Ireland, and different beings that may or may not be gods or goddesses play a role in the stories. This is another set of stories that I studied in college, and was so surprised that they weren't more well-known. When compared to stories like the Saga of the Volsungs and Kashi the Deathless, this particular set is very well-known, but it's not on the popularity of something like Achilles or Hercules. It really should be, though, because these stories are fantastic. They are only slightly less gritty than the Viking stories we've gone over, and the characters are so nuanced that this story does play into our modern taste for anti-heroes and several shades of moral ambiguity. There's not a lot you need to know to jump into the story. There are phases to Irish mythology having to do with different types of stories and time periods. It's interesting, and I'll go over it a little later to avoid losing everyone to an academic discussion so early in the show. The first phase is largely mythological, and the second is largely legendary, though it does include characters that could be considered gods. But even that's a complex topic, thanks to monks transcribing things and making subtle changes. These are stories cobbled together from many different, incomplete sources, and do from time to time leave out key motivations, details, and descriptions. This particular set of stories is well known, though like most things in folklore, there are many different versions of them. The changes between the versions aren't too drastic. Basically where and how some people are born and die, and the lineages are a little different. I'll mention it when it varies wildly. I'll also post a really excellent source for these stories if you're interested in learning more. There are a lot of names here, and a good deal of things I had to cut to make a coherent story. Next week alone, we're going to get to motivations within motivations within motivations. It's a really cool story, but there's just so much in it that I really needed to cut some things down so that it's remotely easy to follow for a listening audience. Also, and this is the last thing, the names are spelled drastically differently than they are pronounced. And, as usual, my pronunciation will be rough. That's the first and last time I'll say that for this series, so that I'm not constantly interjecting. And, quickly, thank you so much to everyone who's reached out telling me the correct pronunciation of Cuchulain's name. I had only known him as Cuchulain, so I appreciate the help. And I'm always open to corrections or elaborations, so everyone please feel free to contact me. Links are in the show notes. There once was a druid named Cothvud. I don't think I've covered druids on here, so here goes. In medieval Celtic cultures, druids were a class of people. 
They were law speakers, poets, doctors, and religious leaders. Unfortunately, very little is known about Druids during the time frame of the story, because everything was preserved and transmitted orally. Very generally, though, they were believed to have been able to prophesize and do other forms of magic. Sometimes. And remember that we're looking at these stories through the lens of medieval Christianity, to whom the Druids were something akin to sorcerers. The Druids were mainly only male, and they also functioned as advisors, diplomats, and arbitrators. Anyway, Druids are cool, but they're not really the focus of today's stories. I'll get back to Kothvud, but just know that he's a smart guy. Julius Caesar wrote that their training can take up to 20 years to complete. So, Kothvud was walking along one day, and he sees a woman standing in her doorway. She yells out to him as he passes, and asks the prophet what the hour is good for. I would imagine he looked up the road, and looked down it before replying that this hour is good for conceiving a king. The woman's name was Ness, and she was a princess. But she was also a queen. You see, Ness's father used to be the king of Ulster, a kingdom in the north of Ireland. He fought on the side of the high king of Ireland, but it did not work out, and both he and the high king were killed. A man named Fergus McRoy took the place of Ness's father, and Ness was allowed to live in this exile. That, I guess, makes her the rightful queen of Ulster, since her father died. That's why she, a princess, is just living in a house off the road. The woman's eyes widen. If the druid was telling the truth, this might be too good to pass up. Maybe there will be a path back to her rightful place. She bolts inside and looks to see if anyone in the house is a worthy male. No, all women. She pushes Kathvad out of the doorway and runs up the road. No, it will take her too long to get into town and find someone. She jogs back, looks the druid up and down, and says, Okay, you said it was a good hour to conceive a king. You swear it? And Kathvad said, Absolutely, a child conceived in this hour will be heard of in Ireland forever. She shrugs. Alright, she tells the druid, Let's go conceive a king. They go inside, and that's exactly what happens. The princess becomes pregnant. She carries the baby to term, and then some. Like King Volsung in episode 3A, her son stays in the womb for years. Three years and three months, to be exact. If you're expecting and your baby is overdue, well, it seems to correlate with legendary kingship. So, congratulations. Really quickly, there's an alternate story about Ness. After her father died, she was raised by multiple foster fathers. Her name in this one starts out as Essa, which means gentle, because she's so easy to raise. Her foster fathers are being attacked, and she puts together a war band to go after the mysterious attackers. Because she was a ruthless and relentless fighter, she begins going by Nessa, which means not gentle. Kathvad, still a druid in this one, is leading the war band against her father, and he surprises her when she's bathing and unarmed. He politely asks her with a knife to her throat to marry him. She agrees in so far as she actually had a choice. The baby shares the same birthday as Jesus Christ in the story, but the actual father isn't Kathvad, but Ness's lover, the High King of Ireland. In both stories, the boy was named Conchavor and raised as the son of Kathvad, and, as his father promised on the day of his conception, he eventually did become king. At seven years old, he became the king of Ulster. The only problem? Well, Ulster already had a king. Here's how it happened. The man who had taken the place of Ness's father, Fergus McRoy, was king in Ulster at this time. And, as it turns out, Ness and Cathvud, Conchavor's parents, did not marry. 
Fergus sought out Ness's hand in marriage, but she wanted something in return. It's simple, she said. Give her son the kingship for a year. That way, Conchavor can call his son the son of a king someday. The people of Ulster said, sure, whatever. It's not like a seven-year-old will actually be king. Fergus, you'll still have the power. Fergus listened to them and called Conchavor the king of Ulster. There's a trope in literature and several real-life examples of mothers scheming politically to get their sons in power, and then using any means necessary to keep them there as a puppet. Ness was no different. Fergus, unfortunately for him, did not realize this until it was far too late. Her son on the throne, Ness went to work ensuring that he stayed there. She set policies in place to tax one half of the population to pay the other half. The people she paid were the warriors. In my brief study of history, there are a few guidelines that seem to carry over for successful rule for a king or emperor, and it seems like the first of those is to pay the army first. I don't know if Ness was a student of history or just very smart, but she figured that one out. The year was up, and Fergus met with Conchvor, his mother, and assorted nobles and warriors to be formally declared king again. Why is everyone just standing around? I'm king again. Right? We're really going to need to think about that, the warriors and administrators said. They mainly didn't appreciate being given over to a seven-year-old as a dowry for Fergus's marriage. But they also really liked getting stuff. And that seven-year-old had given them a lot of stuff. They talked about it. And they said, what Fergus sold, let it stay sold. What Conchavor bought, let it stay bought. And that was how Conchavor became the king of Ulster. It doesn't exactly say what happened next, because the people went from half the population being robbed by Conchavor to the whole population loving him. I would imagine he immediately paid back the people he taxed to death, and then he was a moderately good king who didn't give them a way to get married. The texts then sing his praises. He's the wisest person in the world, and a really great fighter. Also, the people of Ulster have a request for him. Whenever anyone in the kingdom gets married, the groom loves the king so much that he wants the man to come and spend the first night with his wife. The sources seem to state explicitly that this isn't Conchavor enforcing prima noctis on the people. This is the husband and wife wanting this. As it turns out, it's absolutely King Conchavor implementing prima noctis on the people. And all pretenses drop next episode, when he runs into a problem with his greatest warrior. It's dressed up here like it was forced on the king, but it ends up being something he demands from his people later on. Prima Noctis, if you don't know, was a probably not real practice in the Middle Ages and ancient world, where the king or lord or ruler would demand the first night with a new wife. It's in Braveheart, but from what I can tell, it likely didn't happen historically, at least not in the way we think. That being said, this is a legend, so for the sake of our story, it's absolutely happening here. Anyway, Conchavor was an amazing warrior, but despite the greatest amount of effort on behalf of him and his people, he didn't immediately have an heir, so his advisors and warriors wouldn't let him fight out front. Everyone loved and respected and basically worshipped the king, and everything was going well, until the curse started. There was a rich landlord named Kroniak, and he lived in the mountains with all of his sons. One day, he saw a beautiful woman approach him at his estate and pass him by without saying a word. He was confused, but she went right to work putting things in order. When night came, she stayed with him. He really didn't ask questions, and she stayed a long while, and the house seemed blessed under her administration. One day, a fair was being held in Ulster. Kroniak packed up to go, but the woman, now his wife, stopped him. 
Hey, she said, don't get boastful or say anything careless today, okay? He looked at her and said, it's not likely, and left. Cut to him at the fair, remarking that his wife could beat the king's horses in a foot race. That being pretty much the definition of a boastful and careless comment. You see, at the fair, there was a race, and the king came out with his chariots and horses. The king, who owned the place, put on the fair, and ruled over all of them, won the race. Shocking, I know. It was a race against other chariots, not people, so there was really no reason at all for Kurniak to say that his wife could beat them. Unfortunately, the king caught word of this man that insulted him as such, and demanded that Kurniak come into his presence. Okay, Conjovor said, let's race. Kurniak said, oh, no, I was just being stupid and said that. She can't actually race your horses. To which Conchfor said, oh, let me be clear, she races or you die. Kurniak reconsidered and said that they should send a messenger to his estate. The woman said that this was a very bad idea, because you see, she's very pregnant. Yes, apparently Kurniak signed her up for this race in her third trimester. At the fair, she pleads with them to, at the very least, let her have the baby first. They say, yeah, no, you have to race today. She told them that a great evil will come upon them because of this, because she was the goddess Maka in disguise. Maybe, or maybe not. Remember, the stories take place in a pre-Christian Ireland, but the earliest copies we have come from a very much Christianized Ireland. Apparently, the medieval monks who transcribed the versions we have were a little squeamish about talking about gods and goddesses. It's theorized that in some places they left things intentionally vague regarding the deities. It's likely that it's the goddess in this part of the story, though, given what happens next. The very pregnant Maka lined up next to the king's chariot. Some sources say she won, others don't really address it. Some say she died, and still others don't really address it. She did, though, have her babies at the finish line. Twins. In enormous pain because she was forced to run a race. There was still the matter of that curse she was talking about, though. She had screamed during labor, and she cursed all the men of Ulster who were there to hear her screams, and their full-grown sons for nine generations, that they would experience labor pains for five days and four nights in their time of need. The story says that all the men in Ulster will be weak as a woman in labor, which, having seen my wife go through labor, it's not really weakness. It takes an extraordinary amount of strength to withstand the worst, most debilitating pain ever. I mean, during labor, you're not going to pick up a spear to repel invaders, so I'm going to imagine that's what the storytellers meant. According to some text, Conchavor started consolidating his rule. He went to Fergus, the man he deposed, and made peace with the king in exile, giving him land and naming him the heir to the throne of Ulster. He was arranged to marry the daughter of the High King of Ireland, too. He was traveling one day with his attendants and his father, Cuthfud, who was now his court druid. They stopped off at the house of a storyteller, Fedlamid. The storyteller's wife was pregnant, and, sitting around drinking, everyone heard a horrifying shriek when the woman went off to bed. As it turns out, it was the baby inside the wife, and Cuthfud went to take a look and prophesize. Basically, he said, the baby will be a daughter, and when she comes of age, she will be a very good-looking daughter. Maybe the most good-looking daughter, because, according to Cathvad, there will be many wars for her, and she will bring much evil. Cathvad goes through all the things that will be her fault. Apparently, Fergus and the other powerful warriors will be exiled out of Ulster because of her, and many others will be killed, all on account of this little baby. 
After a period of extended silence, one of the warriors chimed in that, yeah, we should kill her. And all the others agreed. Contravor said absolutely not, and comes up with the perhaps more heinous idea. When she's born, we're going to take her. She's going to be really good looking, right? Okay, we're going to hide her away, and we're going to raise her up just for me. As an aside, that's... Ugh. A king raising up a girl from an infant for his bed when she comes of age is definitely one of the sleazier things I've covered on this podcast. Yeah, adult situations. After the girl was born, they did just that. They took her to the countryside and hid her away. No one knew of it except a foster father and mother and a satirist named Liverchum, who, quote, couldn't be kept out. He's just some lanky guy who wanders in, and they couldn't get him to leave, so they let him hang around. For years. The girl did grow up to be strikingly beautiful, and one day, when her foster father was skinning a calf in the snow, she saw a raven drinking at the blood. She said she wanted a man with black hair, red cheeks, and snow-white skin. Leverchomp said that there's someone like that not too far away. His name was Noishu. Deirdre, the very pretty daughter, made up her mind to go find him. He was out walking along the ramparts, singing. He and his brothers were special. Anytime animals heard them sing, they gave two-thirds more milk. And anytime people heard them, they were filled with peace and music. Noishu and his two brothers were such talented warriors that the three could go back to back to back and defend themselves against any army. Deirdre slipped out and was just going to watch him from afar, but he saw her and said, Oh, there's a heifer passing me by. Which... I guess she should take as a compliment, because she replies that heifers grow big where there are no bulls. He remarked that, oh, she had a bull all to herself. Conchivore, who was grossly raising her up for his bed, the biggest bull in the land. She said she didn't want that bull. She wanted a game bull like Noishu. He said no. He knew the prophecy that he and his brothers would be exiled on account of her. He could see this leading very clearly to that exact outcome, so, once again, no. She said, hmm, so you're rejecting me? I am, he said, because I don't want to be exiled and for many people to die on my account. So she rushed him, caught him by the ears, and said that shame and mockery would go on him if he didn't take her with him. He said that he would not, but she had him. He cried a shrill cry and agreed. His brothers came running and shook their heads. They all realized that they were basically fulfilling the prophecy, but they didn't want their brother to be shamed. They were such great fighters, they could go to any other kingdom in Ireland. With Deirdre, they took their whole kingdom, 150 warriors, 150 women, and 150 hounds and workers, and left in the night. Conchavor was, predictably, enraged and immediately sent warriors after them. The brothers and Deirdre escaped all sorts of traps and ambushes, but decided that it was too dangerous to stay in Ireland. Conchavor would stop at nothing, so they crossed the sea into Scotland. They run out of food in Scotland, make a deal with the king to fight for him, the king falls for Deirdre, and they all escape back across the sea to an island. And it's clear to Conchavor that the woman is a curse on the people. The people of Ulster want the awesome fighting brothers back, so Conchavor relents. 
one of the brothers with Deirdre said that if Fergus, the former king who made peace with Conchavor, came as a show of good faith, along with a man named Dovethatch and Conchavor's son Cormac, then they would feel safe to return to Ireland and talk to Conchavor. The brothers vowed that from the moment they entered Ireland, they would not eat any food before Conchavor's. Landing in Ireland, they were immediately invited to a feast. Fergus apparently took an oath years ago that said he couldn't refuse feasts, so he had to stay back. Also, for some reason, the other two hostages stayed back as well. And for some reason, the brothers continued on. My guess is that it was out of honor. They had made a pledge to show up, and they were going to show up. But that's just a guess. It all seems like pretty obvious treachery to me. They show up at the city of Avonmaka, which was the seat of power for Conchavor. And, of course, they see a group of warriors out front. The walls are lined with women and children to watch the slaughter, and Conchavor's men close in behind them. As to what happens next, well, a bad time was had by all. There was no talk of surrendering or anything. Conchavor just wanted the men dead. Conchavor's men come and wrench Deirdre away, and commence to killing. Noishu, the man who had been with Deirdre, took a spear thrust, which broke his back immediately and someone ran out from the Ulster side to help. It turns out it was Fergus's son, and he and the brother had been old friends. He was helping Noishu to his feet. Then, it happened. The warrior who had broken the man's back wanted to make sure he was dead, and thrust the spear through his chest. And it had gone through Fergus's son's chest to get there. They were both dead. The battle continued, and the small group of people on the run killed over 300 of the Ulster men before being massacred to a man. Fergus found out that not only was his son dead, but he was dead at the hand of someone from Ulster. After everything that had happened with Conchavor, after Conchavor stole Fergus's rule as a boy, this was too much. Fergus joined the battle late and burned the city of Evanmaka. Dovthatch, it is said, massacred the girls of Ulster. I'm not exactly sure what all that entails, and I'm content not knowing what all that entails. Fergus and Dovthatch fled Ulster and defected to Connacht, another kingdom. When the people of Ulster heard this, nearly 3,000 people went with them. For 16 years, Fergus and friends raided Ulster, and it said that there was weeping and trembling every night in Ulster because of them. Remember that Deirdre was captured before the fighting, and so she was with Conchavor now, and remained with him for a year. Yeah. She was unhappy, and this was evidenced by the fact that she hardly ate, drank, or slept, and never smiled. After a year... Conchavor asked if there was anyone in this world that she hated more than him. She replied, More? No, I hate you and the king who killed my husband equally. Conchavor smiled a sinister smile and sent messages to Egan, the king who had killed Noishu, Deirdre's husband. Deirdre was to be his companion for a year now. Filled with rage, Deirdre was forced into his chariot when he arrived, and they took off. Sick with the thought of spending a year with the man who had crippled, then killed her husband, Deirdre looked him over. He was with his fighting men, and too powerful to kill here. There was another way out of this, though. She looked up ahead, gauged their speed, and looked back. She caught the eye of Egan. He was puzzled that she was smiling. He heard that she never smiled for Conchavor. It didn't make sense. And then he saw her looking up ahead out of the corner of her eye. Then she closed her eyes. He figured out what she was doing and gasped. They were at full gallop. He reached out to grab the front of her dress, but he was too late. Her eyes were closed, and she leaned back with the most serene, 
peaceful look on her face. Right before the chariot passed a rocky outcropping, she dropped back from the rushing chariot and her head exploded against the rock. After being born into captivity, being on the run for years, and being forced to share the bed of men she absolutely hated, she was free. Now, I'm just going to comment before going on. This is some Game of Thrones level darkness and moral ambiguity. Our hero, coming up, will fight on behalf of Conchivore, Negan. And while that doesn't necessarily mean that they are the good guys, it does kind of cast some doubt on what the story seems to be saying about them. That, or this was the ancient world, where things were especially bad for women, and people did heinous things to each other all the time. The queen and king of Connacht, the one that Fergus and Dove Thatch went to, were named Mev and Aleel with Mev being queen. Like other powerful queens we've talked about in this podcast, she is a survivor, and she uses everything at her disposal to gain and keep power and riches. She ends up being the primary enemy of Conchivore. She's also, in some versions, his ex-wife. In the version where Conchivore is the actual son of the deposed High King, they were married. Mev's father, who in all versions is the current High King of Ireland, killed Conchivore's father in that other version. To make amends, he married Mev to Conchivore, it didn't work out, and the king married off his next youngest daughter to Conchivar. It also didn't work out, but for different reasons. Mainly, Mev drowned her pregnant sister in a river, and Conchivar's son was born posthumously by cesarean section. Yeah, adult themes. Needless to say, there was some animosity between Conchivar's Ulster and Mev's Conic. She was a very picky woman, and in the version I'm going with, she wasn't married to Conchivar, because the only man to meet her exacting standards was her husband, Aleel. The stipulations were that the man couldn't be mean, jealous, or fearful. I found jealousy to be the most interesting. She valued this because she always had a man waiting in the shadows for her. She said this while laying in bed with her husband. He apparently didn't take issue with this, and they laid next to each other talking about how rich they were. Mev matter-of-factly said that it was obvious that she was the richer one, to which Aleel, the husband and king, said, No, honey, I own more nice clothes, gold, and cattle than you. She replied, a little more annoyed, but insistent, and he came back with talking about his own wealth. This quickly morphed from playful pillow talk about how rich they were to a competition. They got up and brought out everything they could and laid it in front of the other. They were matched. Hmm. They commanded their servants to bring out their cattle, but they were matched bovine for bovine, boar for boar. Except one, a beautiful white bull that had been born to one of Mev's cows, but had crossed over to Aleel's herd because he didn't want to be ruled by a woman. Classy. Why let a friendly competition remain a friendly competition when it can result in war between two kingdoms? Mev really doesn't want to lose this competition, and her messenger, Macroth, tells her that there's a brown bull in Ulster who's its equal. She sends McGrath to the man who owns the bull, named Dare. She wants to rent the bull for a year, and at the end of the year, she will give him 50 young cows, she'll double his land, give him a chariot, and throw in her own, quote, friendly thighs to sweeten the deal. And, yes, that means exactly what you think it means. The bull's owner was so happy that he jumped up and down on his cushion until the seams burst. McGrath goes to bed, and Dare does as well. The next day, McCroth wakes up a little late and asks Dare where the bull was. Dare sneered at him. He said McCroth and Mev wouldn't get the bull. They would never get the bull, and he should get out. Wait, 
What? McGrath said. Deer said that it was only because he didn't make a habit of murdering wayward travelers that McGrath and his companions were alive right now. Now get out. McGrath was chased out, and it was only when he and his companions were safely on the road that he learned the rest of the story. McGrath and Dare had each gone to bed, but McGrath's servants stayed up talking, and drinking, and talking, and much more drinking. Servant 1 said Dare was a great guy, and Servant 2 said that he was the best. I mean, to loan them the bowl? Great guy. Yeah, Servant 1 said, if Dare didn't choose to give it to us, it would have taken four kingdoms to fight Ulster and take it. Servant 2 laughed. Well, that's good. I mean, we were just going to take it anyway if he didn't give it up to us, but this way is way better. They both took another drink, and then heard something behind them. They slowly turned around to see one of Dare's servants standing there, bringing them more food. They wondered how much he had heard, but when he shoved the food down on the table and left in anger, they guessed that he had heard enough. He heard it all, actually, and went to Dare, who, friendly thighs notwithstanding, would not be forced into anything. Mev and Aaliyah would never get the bull. Back in Connacht, the kingdom of Mev and Aaliyah, McGrath related the whole tale to Mev, who sat there silently through the whole thing. She nodded and thought to herself, and then calmly said that, well, we said that it would be taken by force if it wasn't freely given, and taken it will be. When everything was complete, Mev, Alil, Fergus, and the other exiles from Ulster marched against the kingdom. Several armies forked off and went in search of the bull. Word reached Conchvor in Ulster. Almost as soon as he heard it, he started feeling a pain in his stomach. That's... Ow. It wasn't his stomach, though. It was a little lower. Huh. It was really starting to hurt. He should talk to someone, like, right now. He left his room and experienced another pang and this one almost doubled him over. He yelled for help, but his cries were met with several others. It wasn't just him. It was all the men. Soon, he couldn't even think, except to remind himself to breathe. He couldn't move, and he could only lie there on the floor in anguish, feeling like he was going to explode, but even that wouldn't solve the problem. He tried to move, to crawl, to wish for death, but he was so incapacitated that wishing was all he could do. All around Ulster, men were experiencing the pain of labor that had come upon them just in their time of need because of the curse laid on them by Maka, just as the armies of Connacht were crossing their borders. That's it for this week. Next time, we'll meet the only young man who can stand and fight the invading warriors, the legendary Irish hero, Cúchulainn. We'll learn about his boyhood deeds, too, and why he should really let the new kid play, especially when he can morph into a monster and fight you and over a hundred of your friends. I want to say thanks to Missy Nicholas, The Nomad, Rachel Bang, To See a Word, MD Kamalama, Galaxy Princess, JC Sheffield, Grazi, Ratsunas, Pablo the Terrible, Simsima121, and Sissamom for the reviews on iTunes. If you'd like to leave a review, it's a huge help, and I do read the feedback I get there. You can find the show at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. There'll be an extra story coming out soon about Queen Mev and a crowd so big that only looking at it suffocated people. It's a huge, amazing help if you'd like to support the show, and it's less than $5 a month. That's less than the price of 25 gummy chews that look like earwax. Luckily, they don't taste like earwax, though. If you're interested in the membership, not the gummy chews, you can go to support.mythpodcast.com. 
The creature this week is the Monostiello from Naples in Italy. He's known as the Little Monk because, well, he's in the shape of a fat little friar. Unlike Friar Rush, a creature we talked about in one of the members' episodes, he is not bad, usually. His ecumenical robes are bright scarlet, and he lives in your house. There, he sneaks around, pinching people and stealing their clothes. And if you're wondering like I was, it is that he steals clothes off people's body, and not just from their closet. He'll also steal your quilts, though to me this is far less troublesome than him stealing your pants off of you. If you give him food, he may turn it into gold for you, but if you brag about this, it will turn back. That little red cardinal hat is pretty important. The little monk guards a treasure hoard, and if you steal this hat, you can ransom it for some of his treasure. Better yet, if you're in need, he'll take pity on you. If you have the courage to follow him through the winding passageways underneath Naples, he will freely give you some or all of his treasure hoard. If someone makes a lot of money in Naples, apparently there's a saying that they must have a little monk in their house. There's no stipulation on how to spend the money, but there's also no explanation as to where the money comes from. So all your newfound riches could be ill-gotten gains made from the stolen pants and quilts of your friends and neighbors. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.